Good morning. This morning, we have the opportunity to finish our journey in these letters of Paul to the, churches, uh, to the church in Thessalonica. Two of those letters, First and Second Thessalonians. I don't know how often all of you have been hopping in. Some of you have been here every week or been online every week. Some of you might just be here this week and, and jumping in right now. That's okay. When we started this series together, it was way back in May. This space was filled with cameras and lights and wires going everywhere as we were only live streaming at that point. And I see God's faithfulness through this series to bring us to where we are now, to be able to gather together here safely. In these brief two letters, we've talked about a number of topics. Let me just jog your memory. We've talked about Christian lifestyle and relationships, how we understand the judgment of God, how we uh, are supposed to think about the end times, how to suffer well, how to keep our witness fresh, how to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. We've had this view into the relationship between Paul and this congregation that he loves so much, and we found, I think, some really natural points of connection between what the Thessalonians were going through and maybe what we're going through in our world right now in the midst of a global pandemic. It's been a really wonderful series. However, there's one thing that has surprised me at the end of this series. I am shocked that not one of you, not one of you all summer long has asked about the artwork for this series and what it means. I got the inspiration for this series called Humble Hope back in late April. Uh, we knew that we were going to study First and Second Th Thessalonians this summer. That had actually been decided before we even knew what COVID-19 was. Uh, so God has been gracious. But I was looking for a, a, a theme to sort of tie this all together. Katie and I have been walking a lot uh, during this season. I know that some of you are maybe walking more than normal. So if you uh, have seen us around and about town, uh, around town, yes, we are walking that much. We're not just snooping on your life. We're, we're getting out and exercising. It's a way to maintain our sanity. And we've been getting up early and, and walking the neighborhoods uh, with our coffee in hand. One of our routes has been to pick up coffee uh, in town and then walk north of the tracks and kind of back around. And one morning while we were walking late April, I saw something that really made an impression upon me. We were waiting at the tracks uh, for a commuter train to, uh, to, to come through eastbound into the city. The gates went down and we were waiting on Washington Street. And as we waited, I watched uh, a man rise from the bench that he was sitting on. He was well-dressed, had a briefcase in his hand. He looked like you know, 10,000 commuters that I've seen in the 7 o'clock hour at the Hinsdale train station in the years that I've lived here. The difference was today, he was the only person getting on the train. 7.30 in the morning, the only one. In what would usually be a completely packed platform with men and women running from half a block away to just squeeze onto the train as it, as it pulls away. In this season, here's this guy, the door's open, he puts on a mask, he walks calmly onto the train. He says hello to the, to the ticket man as he passes. And it was just this simple act that made an impression upon me. Now, there were a couple of thoughts that went through my head as I was watching this. The, the first thing is that this is just a bizarre thing to watch, right? We are living in a very strange time. Uh, I never thought I would see a nearly abandoned platform at 7.30 in the morning in Hinsdale. It feels kind of apocalyptic to watch it happen. 
And then the second thought I had is, is this guy okay? Does he know that there is a pandemic happening? Has he assessed the relative risks here? Does he notice that he's the only person getting on this train? And does he ever wonder, maybe I shouldn't be doing this? And then the last thought I had was, wow, I like this guy. I resonate with this guy. It's kind of a form of resistance in a way, isn't it? Everything is out of order and it's restricted and it's difficult and it's sad and it's confusing. And yet here's this guy who gets out of bed, he gets dressed up, he packs his briefcase, he puts on his mask as he has to do, he gets on the train, he goes to work. He's not retreating, he's just slowly, unassumingly moving forward. And to be honest, that is so often how I feel about my own faith life. And maybe never more so than right now, this particular summer. Faith for me is an exercise in moving forward in the midst of so much upheaval. And I know that for many of you, it's the same thing in this season. We've got a global public health crisis. We have a continual reminder of the ugly history of racial prejudice that feels like just a a gut punch over and over again. We have an economic recession that's impossible to project, but it's definitely not good. There's physical isolation. There's upticks in depression and anxiety. And it's all just kind of crushing, isn't it? And then in the midst of the season two, I'm watching as the church is so often maligned and Christian leaders are behaving poorly and, and churches are in confusion as to how to, to hold things together at a distance. And then what is our witness in the midst of violent hatred between people and and the seeming impossibility of of civil discussion and cities on fire and kids who are going to school in their rooms on Zoom calls staring at screens and, and this sort of toxic individualism that seeps its way into every single facet of life and I can feel it creeping into my heart and it's just so much that it's hard to handle, isn't it? I feel like it's an act of resistance to wake up every day and just like that commuter, you clothe yourself in Christ. That's a biblical image. Clothe yourself in Christ. You pack the briefcase with the essentials for the day and you step out of the door and you face the world to do the work and live the life that God has called you to for that day. So after this walk, I got in the office and I began to search for artwork and I found these figurines sitting on a bench in what felt like a train station to me, felt like it could be Union Station, right? A commuter, a pedestrian. There's a couple kind of blurred in the background, a woman in red. Normal people navigating life. What is it that gets us out of bed? What is it that sustains us? It's not a brash confidence. It's not a violent resistance. It's not a utopian ideal or an individualistic advancement plan. It's humble hope. Unassuming, non-anxious, hardworking, self-effacing, modest, but above all, hopeful. We need more Christians like this. We need more followers of Christ who will assume this humble hope each and every day, and that's what these letters are really all about. So Paul closes 2 Thessalonians, and we close our study with one final command. One that he alludes to, actually, in 1 Thessalonians. We've talked about it already, but he really hits it home 
in this passage, one that calls us back to so much of what we've talked about all summer long, and particularly what we've talked about the last couple of weeks. So, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word this morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18, the end of, end of our study. Now we commend you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that they receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. And we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you. This was not because we do not have the right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even as we were with you, we gave this command. Anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. Take note of those who do not obey what we say in this letter. Have nothing to do with them so that they will be ashamed. Do not regard them as enemies, but warn them as believers. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in all ways. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the mark in every letter of mine. It is the way that I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Now, is this the kind of command that you were expecting at the end of this letter. Maybe not. Maybe you weren't thinking about disassociation and work ethic and idleness when you were thinking about how Paul's going to really hit this thing home, right? Yet this is Paul's final word to the congregation. And I want to unpack a few things in this passage that I think are going to be helpful to you to understand the text more fully. And I think it's going to actually lead to the perfect conclusion of our sermon series, Humble Hope. So first, let's answer the question, what is this one final command all about? And why is it so important to Paul? This command, again, it echoes a a command that we studied in 1 Thessalonians 4. You can go back and listen to that. A command against what the NRSV translates as idleness, idleness, an encouragement towards good, honest work. So it stands to reason that between Timothy's visit to deliver the first letter and his next visit to deliver the second letter, that this issue didn't go away. In fact, for one reason or another, it got worse. So for Paul, who is very complimentary of this Thessalonian church, over and over again he talks about how wonderful they are, for him to point this out twice means that it's not getting better and it's really important to Paul that they work on this. So what is the issue? Here's the issue. Some of the members in the Thessalonian church were causing problems and they didn't have a very good work ethic. Not the kind of work ethic that Paul and Silas taught them. Now there's some mystery here as to exactly what these believers uh, were doing or not doing, why they weren't working hard, and, and what kind of problems they were causing. It could have to do with what Joy preached about uh, a couple of weeks ago, that they were so sure that Jesus was coming back soon that they just didn't really have much motivation to work very hard because Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make everything right. And we know what Paul says about that back in chapter 2. That's a possibility. 
But the more I dig into this, I actually think while there might be a, a view of the end times that's playing a role in this idleness, I think it has way more to do with a misplaced hope. So a few clues in the text. First, our text calls the believers ones who are living in idleness. Now, we see that word and we automatically assume that these people are being lazy, right? That they're just loafing around, they're sitting around, they're not doing anything. But that is actually not what the word means in Greek, and it doesn't fit the description of what the believers are, 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 are talked about, how they talk about the believers later on in the passage. A better translation is actually the word disorderly or disruptive. Disorderly or disruptive. And what was disorderly or disruptive? Well, they weren't following Paul's example of working hard. So when, when Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica, they worked as tent makers in manual labor in the marketplace for the express purpose of being able to do the work of ministry free of charge. He says in this text that they would have had every right to demand payment, right? They would have had every right to ask for food, for their important ministry, but they didn't do that. They were following, actually, somebody else's model. Who's? Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth was this self-giving and faithful person who worked as a carpenter. The Gospels aren't totally clear on this, but, but most scholars believe that at least early on in Jesus' ministry, while he was up in the north, that he was continuing to work as a carpenter so that he could raise money so that he could do ministry. And it wasn't only because he didn't want to be a burden to other people, but because working hard is actually a wonderful witness to people. The idea is to work hard so that your life can be a benefit to other people. And apparently that wasn't happening with a segment of believers in Thessalonica. Not all of them, but a segment of those believers. These believers were being disorderly. They were probably asking for money from the church. They were looking for handouts. They weren't working hard. And in that, they were being disruptive, and it was a disordered understanding of what Paul had taught them. Now, you might be wandering in your mind right now. You might be kind of going, well, how do we understand pastors then? Why do we have paid positions like mine in a church? Why does a significant portion of our budget go towards paid ministry positions? And to be honest, sometimes I wonder that as well. Certainly, this is a different model of church than the first century church would have had. And our commitment here is to continue to work hard, to not be disruptive or disorderly in any way. But don't get bogged down with the issue of paid vocational ministry. Believers in the first century would have had kind of no concept of what it means for us to be pastors in a church in this way. And that really wasn't the issue here, that they were asking to be paid for their ministry. For these disruptive believers, there was something even more insidious that had taken root in their lives. And my theory is that they were steeped in compromise, and they had lost their ability to resist. I get this theory from verse 11, and a tricky word uh, to be translated as busybody. You may have caught that as I was reading it, busybodies. It reads, for we hear that some of you are living in idleness, remember not idleness, but uh, disorder and disruption, mere busybodies not doing any work. This word busybodies is actually the same word that's used for meddling, people who like meddle in other people's business. 
And this word is used several other times in first century documents to describe something called Roman patronage. Hang with me here. Roman patronage was a social system where people would, would ascend to a certain level of importance in society, and once they got there, they would expect that other people would begin to serve them. Sometimes they would hire what would, e- would equate to like personal assistants who were waiting on them. They weren't necessarily doing their, uh, allowing them to do their business. They were just doing whatever they asked them to do, to clean, to cook, to help, to, to go grab things. These Roman patrons, like philosophers, were often called meddlers or busybodies because essentially what they were doing is they were socially imposing on other people. They were wasting people's time and they were distracting them from their daily responsibilities. So you see, I think that some of these Thessalonian believers saw people responding to their ministry, which Paul has already said, you're loving people well, you're doing great ministry. And what did they do? They began to kind of coast. They began to say, well, I've kind of reached sort of this level as a reflection of the Roman society around us where I could sort of expect some free meals and some honorariums and lighter schedules and people waiting on me for a change. I think these believers were disruptive and disorderly because they were compromising with the culture around them. They stopped resisting and they gave in and they expected to be served rather than remembering the witness of Paul and Silas who showed them what it means to serve just as Jesus served us. They began to believe in some ways in the, in the good Roman life, and they lost their ability to resist. And in doing so, they became very disruptive in the church. So we know the problem now. It's compromise. And Paul commands that these believers reverse course. And through this one final command, I think we actually get the clearest view of what humble hope is. Maybe you've been going, I've been here all summer. I don't really know what you mean when you say humble hope. He's been building towards this. So in in closing our study, I want to offer four truths that are going to help us understand this as we close. Four truths about living in humble hope. If that phrase has resonance with you. Here are four ways this text tells us we can do it. The first is this. Humble hope refuses to compromise with culture. I'm not not telling you to retreat from culture, to demonize culture, to assume that anything that happens in here is holy and good and anything that happens out there is, is bad and to be resisted. But you do need to know that the general values of our culture, by and large, are not compatible with the Christian faith. The Roman ideal was to to get to a place where one doesn't need to work that hard, where one pays their dues and they're free and other people can begin serving them for a change and they can be socially imposing on others. I don't need to explain to you what the American culture, the American dream is. We know what it is. There were believers in Thessalonica who began to believe in that good Roman life. They began to compromise. And I'll be honest with you, we live in a time where Christians are compromising with culture right, left, and center. We've lost the ability to resist these tectonic shifts that we're seeing in our culture and our world in in ethics and in, in, in ideologies and technology and sexuality and religion and race and, and globalization and maybe most of all in consumerism. We've all too often let the broader culture lead the way in these areas as to what is true and what is good. We bought in 
We've compromised, and it has been horribly disruptive, and it has disordered our faith. So we have to get to a place where we refuse to compromise. We can't just stay in bed. We have to clothe ourselves with Christ, pack our briefcase, walk out the door, and actively resist all that would seek to form us and steal our hope. We must assert a loyalty to Christ over a loyalty to culture. A humble hope, and people who are living in a humble hope say, no, I will resist the urge to do less and be served more. Instead, I will do more because I'm following Jesus who was a servant above all else. Because I want my life to be a benefit to others. Which brings me to the second truth. Humble hope works diligently and faithfully. Paul has pretty harsh words for those who aren't working in this passage, but they're really needed words, aren't they? I mean, just like that commuter that gets up and walks onto the train and and, and goes to work in the face of many, many reasons not to do so, we need to have the same kind of resolve in our faith. There's this view that Christians are, are supposed to be holy and set apart and separated from secular life, But this is not the model that Paul offers. He takes part in manual labor, I think in large part, because that's what Thessalonians did. That's where the people were. Almost their whole labor force was manual labor. And and so it's worth us asking, what is our context? What do we do? In our context, it's, it's teachers and day traders and bankers and salespeople and stay at home moms and dads and students and and real estate, and design, and caring for the family, and sitting on a board. Whatever it is that you do, do it diligently and do it faithfully. A humble hope eliminates idleness, disorder, and meddling, and busybodies. It focuses us because we believe that Christ is in our work in the things that we do And that that work matters to Jesus. And the wages of that work, what we earn for that work, it allows us to use our resources, both time and money, to do what? To allow our lives to be a benefit to others, to serve others, just as Christ has served us. Third, humble hope takes seriously the call to community. Notice that Paul has some pretty harsh words as they were being read, and they might have stuck out to you. Keep away from idle believers or disruptive believers, have nothing to do with them so that they might be shamed. Now, I can't go into all the word studies here, but you need to trust me when I tell you that these words in English read a lot more harsh than they do in the original language. Paul is actually saying something that's really wise. He's saying, insist upon these things in your fellowship. Don't let a brother or sister in Christ slide by in compromise with culture or in disorder. Call them out. Let them feel love from you by telling them the truth. Paul says in verse 15, do not regard them as enemies, but warn them as believers. So we need to to humbly and lovingly call one another as brothers and sisters in Christ to something better than the world can offer right now. We need to care about each other enough to point one another back to Jesus, not as enemies, not as people who oppose. Opposing is the way of the world. Instead, We care enough as a friend to say, don't bow down to those idols. Don't dull your witness. Don't coast. I I put myself in front of you as your pastor. If you feel 
that I've lost the will to resist to the idols of culture or I am being a busybody, you need to rebuke me, not as an enemy, but as a brother. Life is too short and there's way too much at stake. Lastly, and this is a really good one, a really good one, humble hope doesn't give up. It doesn't give up. Verse 13, brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. Humble hope persists. It gets up each day. It clothes itself in Christ. It hops on the train and goes to work when other people won't. It never loses focus on Jesus. It resists compromise. It works faithfully. It keeps its focus where it should be on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I think this is such an important word for us because I am sure, even in a gathering like this, that there are some of you here who just want to give up. Who just go, it would be better to stay in bed. Maybe God has let you down. Maybe the church has let you down. Maybe God's mission feels pretty impotent right now. Maybe you question the goodness of God in your life. Maybe life is just too heavy and the reserves are too low. Maybe you're an inch from despair and it feels like no one notices that you're about to fall off a cliff. My dear, dear friend, don't give up. Humbly assert your allegiance to Jesus yet again. Set your hope on him humbly. He won't fail you. Everything and everyone else that the world has to offer will fail you at some point. But not Jesus. He never gave up on you. So don't give up on the hope that he offers. Instead, you wake up. You clothe yourself in Christ. You sit on the bench. You wait for the train. You put the mask on. You call to mind his presence. You remember why you're here. You remember that you're loved and that Jesus is the hope that moves you onward. And we live into it humbly so that our lives might glorify God and might be a benefit to everyone around us. This is the way of Jesus, and may we follow in it. Let's pray. Lord, would you instill in us a humble hope? Not a loud one. Not a hope that makes for a great soundbite. But a humble hope. One that's focused on you. One that works hard in the work that you've given us to do. One that takes community seriously one that is persistent, one that refuses to compromise with culture and keeps their allegiance completely and totally on you. Lord, we need your help in this, in this season where reserves are low and confusion is high. We need your wisdom. We need your guidance. For those who are discouraged, who are despairing, who are numbed out. I pray that you might give them the grace 
of a vision of this humble hope that they can assume for themselves. May you give them the courage to wake up each day and actively resist all that would discourage us. We move forward into each day with you, Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, we pray that as those who claim your name and seek to follow you, we might indeed live lives that are of great benefit to everyone around us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.